Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 24th day of August, 2008. I'd like to express a heartfelt thank you to all of my regular listeners for their patience during the Corbett Report's summer hiatus. And I'd now like to let my listeners know about the project which the Corbett Report has been working on during the summer hiatus. What you've just been listening to is music created for a new documentary which the Corbett Report is putting together entitled Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. The song by the same name has been provided to the Corbett Report by DJ Logitech. Please check out DJ Logitech's other excellent work, including the process of transformation, which you might remember from a previous Corbett Report YouTube documentary at DJ Logitech's MySpace page. Again, I'd like to remind all of my regular listeners and let any new listeners know that you can, of course, access all of the websites, articles, videos, and other information cited in this and every episode of the Corbett Report podcast by going to the documentation list for this week's episode. You can find that by clicking on the Episodes tab on the homepage of CorbettReport.com. And underneath the description of this episode, you'll find a link to download the MP3 and a link to the documentation list. Click on the documentation link, and you'll find a list sorted by time index of all of the information cited in today's episode, including DJ Logitech's MySpace homepage. Those of you who have been checking in at the Corbett Report homepage over the summer hiatus may have noticed a changed look and feel to the homepage. Indeed, if you have not yet done so, please go to www.corbettreport.com and check out our updated front page as well as our updated links section. In the links section of the Corbett Report homepage, you'll now find links to all of the Corbett Report spaces on various social networking services. So by all means, please add us on your MySpace account. Please friend us on Dig. Please subscribe to us through YouTube, or please favorite us as a blog on Technorati. All of these services will hopefully help to get the Corbett Report information out to more people. So please help us in that endeavor. Also, on the front page of the Corbett Report, you will now find not only the latest video in our YouTube documentary video series updated every Wednesday, but you'll also find a new media player through which you'll be able to listen to past episodes of the Corbett Report podcast, listen to our interviews, view previous YouTube documentary videos, and also read our latest articles. The media player makes it handy for you to check updates to the website in a quick fashion. But probably the most important new service on the Corbett Report homepage are the subscription feeds. Now you can not only subscribe to the Corporate Report podcast, but also our interview feeds, our YouTube documentary video series, and our articles. Subscriptions for all of these feeds are now available through a one-click subscription service on our subscribe tab on the homepage. So I encourage you to please check that out, and if you're interested, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest interviews, articles, and videos from the Corbett Report homepage. Now, the documentary that I mentioned earlier, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, will be dealing with the monumental fraud that has taken place through the corporate-controlled media to convince us of the threat of Al-Qaeda 
despite the fact that the organization as we've come to understand it does not, in fact, exist. That it is, in fact, mostly a media creation, and that various intelligence agencies and arms of the Pentagon have been found manipulating a lot of the information on Al-Qaeda that has ended up in the controlled corporate media. The documentary is still in production, but I hope to have the trailer for the documentary up in the next few weeks, and then the release of the documentary itself this fall. Please stay tuned for more information about that. And finally, I would like to extend my gratitude to all of those who heeded the request of episode 51 of the Corbett Report to get out our YouTube documentary on internet censorship. That video now has over 1,500 views on YouTube. Unfortunately, that was not enough for the video to win first place in the contest and the $2,000 prize for the Corbett Report. But... It has helped spread the word about the internet censorship that is taking place as we speak. So once again, thank you to all of you who helped get the word out about that video. The Corbett Report also has a video called 10 Ways the Internet is Under Attack, which is now entered into the final competition for the Alex Jones InfoWars Internet Censorship Contest. Now the grand prize for that contest is $5,000, Second prize is $1,000, and third prize is $500. Again, if you are so inclined, and if you find the video informative, please help get the word out about it. And let's continue to expand the Corbett Report's mission. And to that end, once again, thank you to those who helped donate to the Corbett Report's chip-in account during the summer hiatus. Your contributions and support are always welcomed and appreciated. And now finally, it's been a long time since our last episode, so we have a lot of news to cover. Let's get right to it. It's time for today's Real News. Today's first Real News story comes from Raw Story, July 23rd, 2008. Gitmo prosecutor repeats Al-Qaeda deputies' claim. Flight 93 was shot down on 9-11. Osama bin Laden's driver knew the target of the fourth hijacked jetliner in the September 11th attacks, a prosecutor said on Tuesday, in an attempt to draw a link between Salim Hamdan and the Al-Qaeda leadership in the first Guantanamo war crimes trial. Hamdan's lawyer said in opening trial statements that the Yemeni, held for nearly seven years before his trial, was just a paid employee of the fugitive Al-Qaeda leader, a driver in the motor pool who never joined the militant group or plotted attacks on America. But Prosecutor Timothy Stone told the six-member jury of U.S. military officers who will decide Hamden's guilt or innocence that Hamden had inside knowledge of the 2001 attacks on the United States because he overheard a conversation between bin Laden and his deputy, Ayman al-Zawahiri. If they hadn't shot down the fourth plane... It would have hit the dome, Stone, a Navy officer, said in his opening remarks, repeating bin Laden's deputy's claim. Our second story comes from Infowars.net, July 28, 2008. British kids encouraged to become climate cops. Full-page adverts in weekend newspapers ask kids to rat on their friends and family in order to prevent climate crimes. A leading British energy company blitzed the newspapers with full-page color advertisements this weekend which encouraged children to sign up as climate cops and keep climate crime case files on their families, friends, and neighbors. 
The ads, run by NPower, promote a website at www.climatecops.com where trainees must complete three missions before they can join the elite cadets and train to become a climate cop. These missions basically consist of a barrage of eco-propaganda, which the child must simply engage in, in order to be accepted as a special agent of the Green Brigade. The site offers a selection of downloads, including a pack of climate crime cards, which instruct recruits to spy on families, friends, and relatives, encouraging each of them to build up a written climate crime case file. Report back to your family to make sure they don't commit these crimes again, or else, one section states, before reminding recruits to keep a watchful eye on parents and even extend their web further. What about the homes of aunts and uncles or friends from school, it suggests. Our third story comes from the Jerusalem Post, August 3, 2008. Biometric ID bill comes under fire. The Association for Civil Rights in Israel came out on Sunday in opposition to the government bill that aims to establish a national biometric data bank with the fingerprints and facial lines of all citizens and residents to nearly eliminate the risk of counterfeit identity cards. The bill, initiated by the Interior and Defense Ministries, was approved by the Cabinet earlier in the day. ACRI claimed that such a database would be a dangerous step because of the sensitivity of such information, and that there was no use of such a technology anywhere else among Western democracies, even among those that issued chip-embedded smart identity cards. Still, the Interior Security Minister brushed off those concerns, saying the step was necessary for the security of Israeli citizens. Our fourth story comes from Infowars.net, August 5, 2008. Law Professor Counterterrorism czar told me there is going to be an I-911 and an I-Patriot Act. Stanford law professor Lawrence Lessig details government plans to overhaul and restrict the Internet. Amazing revelations have emerged concerning already existing government plans to overhaul the way the Internet functions in order to apply much greater restrictions and control over the web. Lawrence Lessig a respected law professor from Stanford University, told an audience at this year's Fortune's Brainstorm Tech Conference in Half Moon Bay, California, that there's going to be an I-911 event, which will act as a catalyst for a radical reworking of the law pertaining to the Internet. Lessig also revealed that he had learned during a dinner with former government counterterrorism czar Richard Clark that there is already in existence a cyber equivalent of the Patriot Act, an I-Patriot Act, if you will, and that the Justice Department is waiting for a cyber-terrorism event in order to implement its provisions. Our final story comes to us from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, August 21, 2008. NIST WTC7 investigation finds building fires caused collapse. The fall of the 47-story World Trade Center Building 7 in New York City, late in the afternoon of September 11, 2001, was primarily due to fires, the Commerce Department's National Institute of Standards and Technology announced today, following an extensive three-year scientific and technical building and fire safety investigation. This was the first known instance of fire causing the total collapse of a tall building, the agency stated, as it released for public comment 
its WTC investigation report and 13 recommendations for improving building and fire safety. Our study found that the fires in WTC 7, which were uncontrolled but otherwise similar to fires experienced in other tall buildings, caused an extraordinary event, said NIST WTC lead investigator Shyam Sunder. Heating of floor beams and girders caused a critical support column to fail, initiating a fire-induced progressive collapse that brought the building down. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 52 of the Corbett Report. The New Cold War. I was originally going to entitle this episode World War IV Starts in Georgia as a reference not only to the neocons' penchant for calling the next World War World War IV, and also a reference to episode two of the Corbett Report, World War III Starts in Iran, but it wouldn't have been completely accurate. As researcher Webster Tarpley has pointed out, perhaps World War IV actually began several years ago. Because on the morning of 9-11, before any planes are hijacked, you have the whole U.S. Uh, thermonuclear strike forces up in the air, and the missiles, the land-based missiles, the ICBMs, and the submarine-launched missiles. So there's a kind of a Cuban missile crisis alert of the U.S. nuclear forces. My, my friend General Ivashov in Moscow has confirmed, he says, essentially on the morning of 9-11, before any plane is hijacked, we saw B-1s, B-52s flying around like mad, heavily loaded. And this was to intimidate who? Russia. Because at the center of 9-11, there is this U.S. ultimatum to Russia that says, guess what? We're going to seize Afghanistan. Guess what? We're going to seize bases in Central Asia. Geopolitical move of great importance. Now, I think the world owes something to Putin for having the flexibility not to try to fight that head-on, but to have a flexible response. Wouldn't he be glad to get rid of Afghanistan? Well, I think he's glad to get rid of the U.S. because he basically said, you want to go to Afghanistan? It's all yours. You'll see what you find there. We found it. You'll find it. And now they're finding it, of course, and it's a tragedy. So he was, and he also pretended to be Bush's great friend. Now that's long gone. Right now he's he's comparing Bush to a madman with running around with a razor, and he's talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Bush is spouting about World War III. Mm -hmm. So that's where this has all left Mm -hmm. us. But at that time, it was wise for Putin to be flexible. He's obviously thinking, if if the U.S. is under the control of these madmen, they're going to attack Afghanistan and Iraq and maybe Iran or Venezuela or North Korea. And if they do that, they'll simply become weaker and weaker and more scattered and more bankrupt and more hated and more divided. And Russia, in the meantime, will recover from the disasters of the Yeltsin era and and regain solvency and a modicum of military capability to be able to counterbalance them. And that's what we're seeing today. In other words, the return of Russia, which I I think is on the whole a very good thing. No such talk of Russian remilitarization and the resurgence of old Cold War tensions between the growing American empire and the remnants of the old Soviet Union as exemplified by Vladimir Putin may have seemed a bit fanciful even a couple of years ago, but certainly in the last few years, a chain of events has taken place that seems to have led inexorably 
to this point. Columns of Georgian tanks and troops heading for the South Ossetian capital Skinvali. They'd come to subdue a town and a region under separatist control. And for a while they claimed to have done it. But Russian armor, units of the 58th Army, were approaching from the Russian border. Sent to reinforce peacekeepers and to protect a civilian population that Russia calls its own. By day's end, the Georgians admitted that heavy Russian air support had cost them control of the town. Earlier, Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili spoke confidently of Georgia's aims and called Russia the ultimate provocateur. The Russian Federation has bombed the Georgian territory. Populated and peaceful areas have been bombed. It is nothing but a classic international aggression. Russian President Dmitry Medvedev spoke confidently too of Russia's response. Now in South Ossetia, peaceful people are dying. Women, children, old people. The majority of them are citizens of the Russian Federation. In accordance with the constitution and laws of this country, I am, as the president, obliged to defend the lives and dignity of our people, wherever they may be. Georgian troops continue to pour into Skin Valley and its surrounds. The fighting goes on, plumes of smoke rising there above the capital of South Ossetia. Georgia insists it had no choice in taking this decision to restore order so-called inside South Ossetia. But the choice it has taken is a dramatic and potentially dangerous one. Russia is watching extremely closely. Its peacekeepers on the ground have already suffered casualties and with reports of hundreds and hundreds of volunteer fighters and Russian troops potentially crossing the border from Russia, this situation could easily turn from bad to far worse. The scale of the damage was shown in footage from inside Skinvali. Civilian victims too in the nearby town of Gori. Georgia, meanwhile, says Russia's actions could bring the two countries into full-scale war. For those too afraid to leave South Ossetian villages and towns, war must surely be the only word to describe it. Jonah Hull Al Jazeera on the Georgian-South Ossetian border. Now there's really no doubt that the historical timeline connecting the Bush-Putin phone call of 9-11 to the recent attack by Georgia on South Ossetia and the Russian response to that aggression is a long and complex one. So in contradistinction to the myopic reporting of the controlled corporate media, who would have you believe that no geopolitical event has a historical background longer than a few weeks, or a storyline that cannot be encapsulated in a few sentences, I would like to take a look at some of the greater detail of the background of this brooding Russian conflict with the American Empire. First off, I agree with Tarpley, as do many other geopolitical commentators, even our beloved Noam Chomsky, who point out that Putin on 9-11 realized right away that he had a golden opportunity to use the newly found war on terror to prosecute his own war, the war against the Chechens, a war not unlike many other geopolitical conflicts, if not all other geopolitical conflicts, fundamentally about natural resources. But with this sudden new paradigm of the war on terror, Putin would have a way to suppress the Chechen rebels and to be seen as an ally with the U.S. in the war on terror while he was doing it. Never mind the fact that one of the greatest atrocities committed by the Chechen rebels, the very atrocity, in fact, 
that catapulted the then-unknown Vladimir Putin from his office in the FSB, better known as the KGB, into the presidential seat, was in fact not committed by the Chechen rebels, but was later found to have been carried out by the FSB itself, i.e. that was Putin's own 9-11. That information comes from John Sweeney at Cryptome.org in an article entitled The Fifth Bomb, Did Putin's Secret Police Bomb Moscow in a Deadly Black Operation?, and I suggest you follow the link from the documentation to find that article. Suffice it to say, at any rate, that for a time, this honeymoon period of the United States and the Russian Federation under this new war-on-terror paradigm did in fact produce a thriving relationship between these two empires. This was perhaps best exemplified in a meeting in May 2002 in Italy that created a NATO-Russian council designed to increase partnership between the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and Russia. In June 2004, the White House released a fact sheet showing how NATO and Russia had intensified their cooperation since the formation of the NATO-Russia Council, including launching military-to-military interoperability programs that actually allowed Russian and NATO troops to cooperate jointly and conducting emergency exercises together as well as joint terrorist threat assessments, of course. Cracks started to show in this relationship, though, in 2003. In November of that year, Georgia had its Rose Revolution. This revolution displaced the corrupt Soviet leader, Shervanadze, with the bright, young, Harvard-trained Mikhail Saakashvili. For many proponents of Bush's supposed plan to spread democracy throughout the world, this was held out as an example of a success story of spreading democracy. Of course, however, it was a complete lie. That comes from an article entitled The Petals Fall Off the Rose, which comes from schneiderhome.blogspot.com and was first published in January 2008. It reads in part, quote, In November 2003, Georgia had its Rose Revolution. The Western media sat on their comfortable sofas, watched the news on their widescreen TVs, and declared a victory for democracy, a peaceful people's uprising, and a glorious future under the Harvard-trained Saakashvili. Most of the world, myself included, swallowed this narrative. Bad, corrupt Soviet leader Shevardnadze is forcefully ejected from his quasi-dictatorial throne by his own people, who yearned for European norms. Human rights, democracy membership of the EU, and membership of NATO. The people loved their new leader so much that 97% voted for him in the free and fair presidential elections the following January. Unfortunately, this is not what really happened, and the protests and emergency rule that marred the country's media image four months ago and brought about the snap presidential election today aptly illustrates this. The Rose Revolution was not a simple uprising, but was aided by the CIA and Ambassador Richard Miles, think Serbia. From early 2002 onwards, the CIA had been operating in Georgia, supposedly to combat Al-Qaeda. And yes, Georgia is an odd place to fight the war on terror against OBL. One of the main groups that took to the streets and stormed the Parliament House was Khmer, meaning enough, which was almost certainly CIA-funded. Saakashvili was never the Democrat and wonderful liberal he was made out to be. His was a strategic role. 
he would further U.S. interests in the Caucasus, especially with respect to Caspian Sea oil in return for U.S. and EU protection. However, Saakashvili could never guarantee total support at home, and thus slipped into heavily using patronage, what others may call corruption, and strongman tactics. He warmed up the nationalist rhetoric and clashed with Russia over southern Ossetia, population 70,000, about the same as Tunbridge Wells. He called Georgia's participation in the USSR as the Soviet occupation and put up posters around the capital Tbilisi stating that entry into the EU and the European People's Party specifically was his key foreign policy goal. The Prime Minister mysteriously died. All the time, the EU was favorable towards Georgia's entry into the EU, and the US pushed heavily for Georgia to be brought into NATO. Saakashvili has viewed and presented membership of NATO as not being part of the Western alliance, but in terms of nationalism. If Georgia is part of NATO, it can play hardball with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, the two Russian-backed breakaway regions with the power of NATO behind it. That is why this small, often forgotten nation is of great strategic importance, oil, and great power politics. End quote. Now, of course, the Russians knew what was happening in this new power politics game that was being played by the U.S.-backed Saakashvili, who suddenly rose to power in a spontaneous people's uprising in Georgia. And there's no doubt that Moscow was keeping a close eye on the situation, as they were in March of 2004, just a few months later, when seven new members were added to NATO, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Now, while these nations seem of little geopolitical import to the Western eye, they are, of course, extremely important to Russia, being in their former sphere of influence. An idea of that can be obtained from a fascinating article entitled NATO's Encirclement of Russia Nears Completion by a reporter named Vacheslav Tedekin. This report was originally posted on something called the Orthodox Anti-Globalist Resource Center, which is dedicated to the struggle of the people of Russia, the Orthodox Christian world, and the Eurasian continent against the totalitarian New World Order, which sounds like a fascinating site, but unfortunately no longer exists. However, this article was preserved at something called the Final Phase Forum, and I'll read from that. Quote, on Monday the 29th of March, a meeting of heads of state of the NATO member countries will take place in Washington, at which the entries of Bulgaria, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Estonia, and Romania into that alliance will become official. An analogous ceremony of foreign ministers will take place at NATO headquarters in Brussels. This is an event of no small importance, immeasurably more significant for us than the terrorist acts in Spain and recent events in the Balkans and the Mideast. A military concentration of several million soldiers and officers, equipped with the latest military technology and espousing an aggressive expansionist doctrine, has now arrived at our borders. Putin, who up to now has always regarded the approach of this armada with Olympian tranquility, and tried to sell us on the idea that NATO is neither friend nor foe, simply a fact of life, but more of a friend after all, has suddenly shown signs of disquiet. Unprecedented strategic exercises of the Army and Navy have begun. Even fuel has turned up. Pilots are once again flying, ships are headed to sea, and tanks to the training grounds. And when three submarine missile launches failed recently, Putin's nervousness was visible. 
Up to now he's also observed the open destruction of our armed forces with the same Olympian calm. We'll share some considerations on this subject with you a bit further on, but now let's refresh our memories regarding the recent history of NATO expansion. The first stage occurred five years ago. In the warm days of May 1999, while NATO missiles were bombing Yugoslavia to smithereens, the Alliance received new members Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic in a ceremony in Washington, amid fanfare and proclamations of the Alliance's kinder, gentler image. Later, NATO Secretary General Javier Solana would be sentenced in absentia in a Belgrade court to 20 years imprisonment for war crimes. At that time, Russia at least tried to resist. A broken Yeltsin agreed to the alliance's absorption of three new members, but announced the existence of a certain red line beyond which NATO wouldn't be permitted to expand. That Russia would never allow the Baltic republics and other former republics of the USSR to join NATO and the West took this warning rather seriously. Pro-Western Yeltsin has left the political stage, replaced by patriot Putin. But already by October 2001, when I was in Finland as a member of a political delegation, our Finnish partners asked me in bewilderment, does Putin understand what he's doing? You see, he's not only agreed to the entry of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia into NATO, but is factually driving neutral countries into the alliance too. Indeed, Putin's announcement regarding the Baltics that each country has the right to choose how to provide for its security was correctly understood in the West. For them, this was proof that the red line had been forgotten and that the president now wouldn't refuse to raise a champagne glass and drink to NATO's health. A lot of champagne has been drunk since. Western missionaries with their centuries-old colonial experience have skillfully enticed our leaders with baubles, sermons, and audiences with the Queen of England. Then we saw how right in the wake of the missionaries followed businessmen ready to seize Russia's riches and, behind them, soldiers to guarantee the safety of the riches seized by the businessmen. Now they've broken the news to the leader that he's no longer really in charge. So he's begun to stir. But what's done is done. The poison ivy of NATO friendship is now in full bloom. NATO now has innumerable friends in Moscow who've made a specialty and not a shabby source of income out of persuading us that NATO presents no threat to Russia, and they're aided by those Russian officials with their endless journeys to Brussels for fruitless sessions of the Russian-NATO Commission. So Putin has suddenly gotten nervous and begun to concern himself with the battle readiness of the Russian army, and he's very right to do so. The West harbors no gratitude towards Putin for his services in destroying the geopolitical legacy of the USSR. They're demanding new concessions. And to add insult to injury, it turns out that NATO and other friendly organizations are now preparing a Chechnya war crimes dossier, in which one of the main villains could well be Putin himself. Putin would never have been installed in power by the masters of the New World Order if he weren't blackmailable. The juiciest materials in his dossier of Kompromat, that's Russian for compromising materials, are the engineered war in Chechnya and the accompanying explosions of apartment buildings in Moscow, Volgodonsk, and other cities, all allegedly carried out by Russian intelligence with the purpose of boosting Putin's popularity rating. So NATO will have yet another pretext for intervention and the necessity for putting Putin on trial for Chechnya. And he knows this. End quote. Again, I suggest you read that article in its entirety to find out more of the Russian response and Russian thinking with regards to what was then being perceived as an inexorable NATO expansion 
into former Russian sphere of influence. This expansion continued in a rather dazzling fashion in November of 2005, just one year after the staged CIA coup known as the Rose Revolution. This came in the form of the Orange Revolution, another staged people's uprising, this time in Ukraine. That the Orange Revolution was heavily staged and financed by outside help was even acknowledged in the controlled corporate media, although, of course, that acknowledgement was only insofar as it was understood that this was a good thing. Because, of course, when the CIA and other foreign institutions and powers get involved in overthrowing a foreign government, it could only be for good altruistic purposes. Or at least that was the position taken by Carol Off of the CBC, who reported on Anatomy of a Revolution, a 2005 documentary for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, about the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine. From a write-up about that documentary, the following, quote, Behind the revolution were students and other young people in a movement they named Pura, Ukrainian for It Is Time. Their strategy was peaceful civil disobedience. As Karoloff explains in Anatomy of a Revolution, the keys to Pura's success were humor, careful planning, the internet, and considerable help from outside the Ukraine. That help came from people who had already fought similar battles in Serbia and Georgia. Assistance or money for the Ukrainian movement also came from groups like Freedom House, the International Republican Institute, Western governments, and emigre communities. The Open Society Institute, funded by billionaire George Soros, had been involved earlier. End quote. Now keep George Soros in mind because we will be coming back along that track. But let's continue along our timeline of how NATO's encroachment and encirclement of Russia may have been tied to the recent events in Georgia. Obviously, after the Rose Revolution and the Orange Revolution, Putin and Russia were no longer making bones about the fact that the American Empire was beginning to encroach in their backyard, and they were not happy about this. This was also found through NATO's expansion through the use of individual partnership action plans or IPAPs, which were launched at the November 2002 Prague Summit of NATO. These IPAPs are open to countries that have the political will and ability to deepen their relationship with NATO, and is of course seen as a fast track towards eventual NATO membership. Georgia has been an IPAP since 29th of October 2004, Ukraine since 1997, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Moldova constitute the other individual partnership action plans to increase and expand NATO directly to the doorstep of the great Russian bear. It's in this context of NATO encirclement of Russia that we can begin to understand the arms race that is beginning to develop, or has been over the last two years, between Russia and America. Perhaps one of the clearest signals of this came from Putin's own mouth, in 2007, at the 43rd Conference on Security Policy in Munich. I first reported on this story back in Episode 2 of the Corbett Report, World War III Starts in Iran, but it might be useful to take a look at it once again. This comes from an article headlined, Putin Warns U.S. Policy Creating New Arms Race, from February 10, 2007. And it reads in part, quote, Russian President Vladimir Putin warned Saturday that the United States' increased use of military force is creating a new arms race, with smaller nations turning toward developing nuclear weapons. 
speaking at a conference of the world's top security officials, including Iranian nuclear negotiator Ali Larijani, Putin said nations are witnessing an almost uncontained hyper-use of force in international relations. One state, the United States, has overstepped its national borders in every way, he told the 250 officials, including more than 40 defense and foreign ministers. This is very dangerous. Nobody feels secure anymore because nobody can hide behind international law, he said through a translator. This is nourishing an arms race with the desire of countries to get nuclear weapons, he added, without singling out any particular nation. In a harshly critical speech, Putin also voiced concern about U.S. plans to build a missile defense system in Eastern Europe, probably Poland and the Czech Republic, and the expansion of NATO as possible challenges to Russia. The process of NATO expansion has nothing to do with modernization of the alliance, or with ensuring security in Europe, Putin said. On the contrary, it is a serious factor provoking reduction of mutual trust. End quote. This was a rather chilling speech, and it did send shockwaves through the international community in just how viciously Putin seemed to be attacking the United States and NATO. If this was the unofficial declaration of a new Cold War arms race, then perhaps one of the clearest signals of a return to the old Cold War came in January 2008 by a report that stood very little scrutiny in the Western media, developed by the influential think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The report was entitled, Towards a Grand Strategy for an Uncertain World, Renewing the Transatlantic Partnership. The report did generate some headlines, mostly in the London press, including The Guardian, but it should have generated a lot more, particularly because of the following passage. Quote, the first use of nuclear weapons must remain in the quiver of escalation as the ultimate instrument to prevent the use of weapons of mass destruction in order to avoid truly existential dangers. At first glance, it may appear disproportionate, but taking account of the damage that it might prevent, it could well be proportionate. Despite the immense power of destruction possessed by nuclear weapons, the principle of damage limitation remains valid and must be kept in mind. Indeed, it was one of the principles that governed NATO's nuclear planning during the Cold War. End quote. Yes, that's correct. This influential policy paper from the influential think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, advising NATO, recommended a nuclear first strike preemptive doctrine which would allow NATO to use nuclear weapons in a first strike against any nation threatening to use weapons of mass destruction. Now, obviously, the sudden proclamation of this doctrine and policy for NATO was meant as a veiled threat in several directions, not only towards Iran, which was, of course, at the time being demonized as a developer of weapons of mass destruction. And, of course, Russia immediately responded to this, on the 24th of January, when, quote, top brass defends Russia's right to preemptive strike, end quote. And from that article from the Moscow News on 24th of January 2008, it says in part, quote, Russia underlined its right to preventive nuclear strike this week, 
in what military analysts interpreted as a move to introduce more clarity into the nation's defense doctrine. The statements made by Chief of General Staff Yuri Baloyevsky on Saturday were followed by naval exercises in the northern Atlantic that will feature over 40 aircraft of the Air Force. Though unrelated, the developments pointed to a Russia not so much on the offensive as a one that was eager to bring its defense doctrine in line with that of the Western world and make it more up-to-date with contemporary military demands, end quote. So in early 2008, this is where the world stood, with Russia and NATO beginning to play games of political and diplomatic brinksmanship that were only bringing the world steps closer towards an open Cold War conflict. In my monthly discussion with GeopoliticalMonitor.com analyst Nico at the time, in February of 2008, we mentioned this arms race between the American Empire and the Russian Empire in relation to a South American arms race which was being pumped in the Western media at that time. So recently, and there's been some discussion of this over several years now, but recently it's come up again with articles in the New York Times and the Christian Science Monitor, where people have said that because of South American arms procurement, there is an ongoing South American arms race. Uh, the implication being that this would lead to instability in the region, potential conflict. But if you look behind the story that's put forward in the New York Times article and the Christian Science Monitor article, really what we have is not concern over arms procurement, which is an ongoing situation in any country that maintains a military, but alarm and concern over arms procurement, not from the United States, but from Russia. So the most notable example, and the one that people are most concerned about uh, in the discussion over this issue, is Venezuelan arms procurement. And the New York Times article previously stated that Venezuela had ramped up its arms procurement at an alarming and significant rate. And while it's true Venezuela now with its oil wealth is spending more money on arms, what is important to note is that the figure used in calculating the percentage was actually the number of foreign arms, so non-U.S. arms, that uh, Venezuela in relation to other countries is purchasing. And this makes sense because the United States has put in an embargo on Venezuela and has refused to sell it arms. So when we see Western sources being concerned about a South American arms race, about arms procurement, that's really based on alarm over Russia offering to sell uh, weapons, uh, small arms. Recently, there's been a discussion of selling nuclear subs to Venezuela from Russia. So the Western news sources reflect Western concern over the Bolivarian Revolution, as Hugo Chavez, leader of Venezuela, terms it, in conjunction with Bolivia, with Nicaragua, and with other onside South American nations. So what we see here is the continuance of the loss of American might, American influence in South America, and the rise of an independent movement uh, supported militarily by Russia, who wants to make a lot of money selling arms uh, to counter U.S. dominance. Interesting. Yes, definitely some spin behind those headlines. And uh, Russian influence in the American continent militarily would be um, a large uh, factor in the remilitarization of Russia. I noticed on geopoliticalmonitor.com, uh, January 28th, 2008 weekly update, um, there was a report on uh, Russian 
naval exercise that was taking place in the Atlantic. And I don't know if you saw this, but in uh, the Japan Times on February 10th, 2008, they reported that a Russian bomber was detected violating Japanese airspace during those naval exercises. And uh, I think that speaks to the growing militarization of Japan and encroachment on traditionally American uh, territory, whether it be in South America or in Japanese airspace. I'm wondering if you can uh, point to any other signs of growing Russian remilitarization in recent months. Oh, absolutely. You see it all over. And the same issue with the air patrols and the violation of airspace has happened in Canada as well, where Russian planes have started to uh, come close to Canadian airspace and be on the verge of violating it uh, to test Canadian response times. So this is something we've seen uh, all throughout the world. There have been numerous uh, naval air force exercises. There's been the reassertion of the Russian uh, first strike policy or the policy that they will not rule out the first use of nuclear weapons. And in response, Western retired military generals reasserted the identical Western position. There's all sorts of talking. There's all sorts of military exercises. And then there's the attempt for Russia to reinvigorate its arms sale uh, and its arms productions. So we've seen recently Russia, for the first time, uh, overtaking the United States in the number of arms sold. So the U.S. sells about a third of the world arms, and Russia just recently... Uh, has overpassed it, selling just slightly more, but also about a third. For more of that interview with geopolitical monitor analyst Nico, please go to our interview section on the CorbettReport.com homepage, and you'll find that under the February 2008 interview with Nico. Now, as we pointed out before, this was all leading up to something, and that something happened on 888 when Georgia went into South Ossetia. Even that basic fact has been skewed by the media, and finding out exactly what did happen in the run-up to and in the execution of this attack is difficult, but there are a few sources which I suggest you turn to. Of course, geopoliticalmonitor.com has been keeping running tabs of the situation in the run-up to and in the execution of this war between Georgia and Russia. Globalresearch.ca has also had several important articles by authors such as Michel Chosodovsky and William Engdahl, who I've mentioned before on this program, and I would highly suggest you check out their works. Of course, Kurt Nimmo at Infowars.com has been producing some extremely informative articles, including probably the best summary of the situation in the South Ossetia conflict, which was published on August 9, 2008, under the headline, Did U.S.-Israel Provocateur South Ossetia Conflict? Does the sun come up in the morning? That's an extremely informative article, and it would take too long for me to read right now, but I do suggest that if you're looking for one article that will help give you a handle of what happened on 888, that is the one to read. Of course, there are numerous other articles that I could and would read if I had the time, but at this point, maybe I'll just go through some headlines to point you in the right direction, and I'll put these links up in the documentation list for today's episode, of course. For the basic background of U.S. military presence in Georgia, please go to Infowars.com article entitled Evidence of U.S. Military Presence in Georgia, which was put out on August 8, 2008. 
In it, you'll find links to over a dozen articles talking about various U.S. Army exercises and U.S. military presence in Georgia before the conflict began. For an idea of how the Western media has been skewing and altering the reality of what's been happening in the South Ossetia region, I would highly suggest a YouTube video called CNN Uses Footage of Skinvali Ruins to Cover Georgian Report, which is available on YouTube. And you can, of course, find that in the documentation list for today's episode. You can also find it in the favorite section of my YouTube homepage at youtube.com slash Report. Another excellent source of information about the biased Western media coverage of the Georgian conflict comes from MediaChannel.org, which posted a story called The CNN Effect, Georgia Schools Russia in Information Warfare. Again, that's an excellent article that goes through some of the info war that's being waged right now for your mind and to control your perception of what is happening in the Georgia-Russia conflict. For a chilling warning of what may come in this conflict, please go to a PrisonPlanet.com report entitled Russian General Says Georgia May Commit False Flag Terror Attacks from August 18th, 2008. And another very interesting article comes from the Wall Street Journal from August 12th, 2008, under the headline Russia-Georgia Conflict Offers Glimpse at New World Order. The Washington Times gave a rare glimpse into the real meaning of this conflict in its August 12, 2008 report under the headline Georgia Clash Imperils Europe's Fuel Flow that talks about the real underlying message and meaning of this conflict, that of securing oil pipelines from the Caspian Sea. Of course, this is an important point in almost any geopolitical conflict, as I've mentioned earlier, and this Washington Times article actually gets that right. For more information about that aspect of the conflict, I suggest you listen to the recent interview I conducted with Marsha Reed of GeopoliticalMonitor.com. Again, you can find that on our interviews page from August 2008. And again, to stay up to date with all of the interviews from the Corbett Report, including our monthly update from GeopoliticalMonitor.com correspondent Marsha Reed, please subscribe to the Corbett Report interviews feed from our homepage. Again, this is an incredibly important story, and to do it justice, I would need probably five times the amount of time I have to go through some of those articles. But I trust that you'll be able to go through and find some of those links and find some of the articles helpful in getting a handle on some of the information about what's happening in this Georgia-Russia conflict. But right now, I'd like to focus in on something that I mentioned earlier. George Soros. His name, of course, came up earlier when we were talking about the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, and the Open Society Institute, which he founded, helped fund that supposedly spontaneous people's uprising. Of course, his fingerprints are all over Georgia as well. Even Wikipedia admits this. In the Wikipedia entry for the Rose Revolution, there's a subhead, Funding from Soros-Related Organization, which reads, quote, a significant source of funding for the Rose Revolution was the network of foundations and NGOs associated with American billionaire financier George Soros. The Foundation for the Defense of Democracies reports the case of a former Georgian parliamentarian who alleges that in the three months prior to the Rose Revolution, Soros spent $42 million ramping up for the overthrow of Shevardnadze. Speaking in Tbilisi in June of 2005, Soros said, 
I'm very pleased and proud of the work of the Foundation in preparing Georgian society for what became a Rose Revolution, but the role of the Foundation and me personally has been greatly exaggerated. Among the personalities who worked for Soros's organizations, who later assumed positions in the Georgian government, are Alexander Lomaya, Secretary of the Georgian Security Council and former Minister of Education and Science, is a former Executive Director of the Open Society Georgia Foundation, overseeing a staff of 50 and a budget of $2.5 million. David Darchashvili, presently the Chairman of the Committee for Euro Integration in the Georgian Parliament, is also a former Executive Director of the Open Society Georgia Foundation. Former Georgian Foreign Minister Salome Zuberchvili wrote, These institutions were the cradle of democratization, notably the Soros Foundation. All the NGOs which gravitate around the Soros Foundation undeniably carried the revolution. However, one cannot end one's analysis with the revolution, and one clearly sees that, afterwards, the Soros Foundation and the NGOs were integrated into power. End quote. This point is also made clear in a very important article by the excellent researcher F. William Engdahl, entitled The Puppet Masters Behind Georgia President Saakashvili, from the 12th of August, 2008. In that article, Engdahl writes, quote, Since coming to power in 2004 with U.S. aid, Saakashvili has led a policy of mass-scale arrests, imprisonment, torture, and deepened corruption. Saakashvili has presided over the creation of a de facto one-party state, with a dummy opposition occupying a tiny portion of seats in the parliament, and this public servant is building a Ceausescu-style palace for himself on the outskirts of Tbilisi. According to the magazine Civil Georgia, until 2005, the salaries of Saakashvili and many of his ministers were reportedly paid by the NGO network of New York-based currency speculator Soros, along with the United Nations Development Program. End quote. So the obvious question to ask at this point is, who is George Soros? And under that very headline, with the S in Soros being spelled with a dollar sign, you can find the answer. The article, Who is George Soros?, comes from oilempire.us and consists of excerpts from literally dozens of articles answering that very question. Some of the answers offered in that extensive list and again, please follow the link from the documentation list to that article to find the dozens of links to various articles about George Soros, all of which provide very important information. But some of the answers to the question, who is George Soros, include this one from Michael Rupert of FromTheWilderness.com. Quote, Major power brokers like international financier George Soros are backing moves to remove Bush, and Soros is opening his sizable checkbook to do it. I was dismayed recently to see that a board member of the ostensibly independent Pacifica Radio Network advocated direct solicitation of funds from both Soros and the CIA-connected Ford Foundation. Soros, who has or had business ties with Zbigniew Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, the Carlyle Group, the CIA's Radio Free Europe, Wesley Clark, Richard Allen, and George W. Bush through Harkin Energy, is not a friendly, tree-hugging progressive out to save the world. He is the fist in a velvet glove to the neocon's baseball bat across the nose. 
Soros, a member of both the Council on Foreign Relations and the Bilderberger Group, also sits on the World Economic Forum with many Rockefeller interests. End quote. Now, as I say, there are many extremely fascinating articles about Soros and his various business connections and possible ties to the CIA. Also, many important articles dealing with his association to various revolutions, including those from Serbia to Georgia to the Ukraine. But for those who are not concerned by foreign policy, well, how about domestic policy? Soros, of course, is also a key political player in the U.S., so which of the two political puppets does he endorse in the 2008 campaign? Well, take your pick. We have an article from Sweetness and Light from February of 2008 entitled Shocker, Move On, Soros, endorses Obama, which talks about an AP article in which Soros does indeed endorse Obama through his moveon.org network. But we also have an article from aim.org, Accuracy in Media, by Cliff Kincaid, entitled McCain, Soros, and the New Global Order. Reading from that article under the subhead NATO and the New World Order, quote, Another Clinton initiative that McCain embraces is NATO expansion. Clinton transformed NATO from a defensive alliance against the Soviet Empire into an offensive military force without submitting a new NATO treaty for ratification to the Senate. Nevertheless, McCain voted for Clinton's war through NATO in the former Yugoslavia and now favors independence for Kosovo, a Serbian province, as an outcome of this illegal war. The war became illegal when the House refused to authorize it under the War Powers Act. The future of NATO lies not only in expanding its membership, transforming its mission, and deepening its commitments, it lies also in cooperating with states far from our shores, says McCain. In a recent statement urging a new global order of peace, McCain has called for a new global league of democracies, one that would have NATO members at its core dedicated to the defense and advancement of global democratic principles. McCain made his first pitch for such a new international organization in 2007 before the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in Stanford, California. It could act where the UN fails to act, to relieve human suffering in places like Darfur, McCain says. This League of Democracies would not supplant the United Nations or other international organizations. It would complement them, he explains. While it may sound good in theory, a democracy coalition project was actually started in June of 2002, and it has been run by the political left, most of them former Clinton officials. Seed money and original sponsorship were provided by the George Soros-founded Open Society Institute. Key officials include Morden Halpern, the director of Soros's Open Society Institute Washington office, and former Clinton Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who served as Strobe Talbot's boss. Halpern also worked under Albright at State. If McCain is promoting a Soros-funded project or idea, it would not be the first time. WorldNet Daily and others have noted evidence that McCain's Reform Institute also received funds from Soros. Hernandez is a senior fellow there. Could Soros, the billionaire financial manipulator, be in a position to call the shots no matter who is elected in the fall? End quote. 
Soros, it seems, is someone who is almost omnipresent in American politics, both domestic and foreign, and is an incredibly important player on the world stage, being, of course, one of the richest men in the world, and is rumored to be an intelligence asset. So what then does this have to do with the new Cold War, which is developing between an ever-expanding NATO and the great Russian sleeping bear? Well, a lot. Back in 1993, George Soros authored a book entitled Toward a New World Order, The Future of NATO. And this book, according to Cliff Kincaid of AIM.org, posits that NATO could take on the military responsibilities of the New World Order until the UN is ready to do the job. The iron fist in the velvet glove, indeed. And I'll leave this investigation at this point, although there are many possible paths we could follow from here, but I'll leave this as the jumping point for you to begin your own investigation. George Soros is a key player in this game, and knowing his thoughts on the New World Order is a good way towards understanding the New World Order. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett. Thank you for joining me for this continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. And join me again next week for another edition. This nation is right now fighting for its survival, but we are also fighting, fighting for world peace and we are also fighting for future world order. What is at stake here is world order and what is at stake here are basic principles of international law.